0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're welcome to another edition of Business Impact. It's great to be here as the autumn closes in on us. some nice seasonal colours around. And this is actually our 50th show or 50th episode of this podcast. Amazing amount of time we've spent on it. We never thought we would have spent this much time. It was set up originally under kind of emergency conditions and it was part of an attempt by UC Business School, to, to reach out to the wider community beyond the, the four walls of the campus. So it's been an am- amazing experience for me and hopefully for a lot of our guests. We're actually into the second series now, so sounds a little bit like a, a TV drama or something like that, that we've actually got a second series. But uh, if you want to hear any of the previous episodes, just go to ucd.ie slash Quinn slash podcast, and we've covered virtually every issue under the sun in that list. Now, the first one we ever did, my guest was Professor Neve Brennan, who is, of course, um professor of management, Michael McCormick, professor of management. She's also the founder and academic director of the UCD Centre for Corporate Governance. And we watch our traffic figures very closely here. We keep a quite a, a beady eye on them. And let me just say that the episode and the conversation with Neve was right up there in terms of the amount of people who downloaded it. We we're very grateful for that because of some of the things that we were talking about at the time. So at that stage Neve was at our kitchen table she has actually managed to get from out of there and onto UCD campus so that's uh, some kind of achievement in these crisis conditions and times that we live in and um, so we're going to have another conversation because we think looking back a year on at some of the events some of the changes some of the subtleties of what's been happening both in society and in the business world and around corporate boardroom tables as well is worth uh, looking back and documenting at this stage so you're very welcome to the podcast and welcome back uh, Neve
1: thanks very much Avish
0: it's great to have you. As I said, I'm just going to give you a flavour of some of the headlines that were in the papers on the morning of the 20th of April 2020 when I talked to you that first time. Um, we had government formation talks intensify. We had uh, testing in nursing homes needs to be stepped up, says Professor. We had um, Ireland may be hit by repeated waves of coronavirus, which was pretty accurate. And we also had 1 million people are receiving state support. And this one, the next one I'm going to read, to me was the most interesting of all, which was U.S. oil prices go to zero for the first time in history. Uh, I just checked before we started this podcast today, they're now back up at $85 a barrel. So you can really get an idea of the sort of the roller coaster nature of this. This is some era that we're living in. You're welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you along. Uh, we'll re- reprise some of those things in a few minutes. But first of all, I just had to get a sense of, um, personally, how busy you've been. I know that certain things have happened in your academic career and you've had a, a good chance to do some great research. So, so how are things been going for you since I talked to you last?
1: Well, in the last year, Emmett, I consider myself to be exceptionally privileged. I've had a fantastic year. I've had a fantastic two years, really. In my own head, I have targets, productivity targets for my research. And I doubled them last year and this year and it, it wasn't just that I've been productive. I was working on lovely projects that I thoroughly enjoyed being on my own, maybe with the dog in the kitchen, uh, working away at the kitchen table. It was just so enjoyable and I'm so lucky that I work with really super smart people and um, I have some really super projects on the go. So. I consider myself to be one of the most privileged. The pandemic has been absolutely appalling for many. When you reference the headlines and the reference to testing in nursing homes, I mean, that was a pretty awful aspect of the pandemic. A lot of elderly people died. And if we knew uh, then what we know now, they probably wouldn't have died. So that's very tragic. Um, So there were lots of groups that suffered very badly. The younger age group suffered also. But um, I didn't um, quite the reverse. And I think, funny enough, going back to mention of business, a lot of businesses do very well in the pandemic as well. Some, notably the entertainment sector, have suffered terribly. So it's been a story of good and bad, depending on your, where you are in society and your context and all the rest.
0: Yes. And and you were elected to the um, membership of the Royal Irish Academy as well, I think, was this
1: last summer? Am I right? That, that was in May 2020. and I must say that was an absolutely unbelievable honour. And the one thing I regret was that had we not been in the middle of a pandemic, I would have had a huge party and invited all my pals to a big celebration. So I missed that. Um, But I very much appreciate uh, the Royal Irish Academy honouring me in that way. You know, I was the first business school academic to, um, to get that um, recognition. So I feel, again, so privileged, Emmett, because I was being recognized for my research. I love it. So it's so wonderful to be recognized for something you love doing.
0: Yes, and I think what a lot of people don't know about you, because we have a, this is the second time we've spoken to you and a lot of people have read interviews with you and heard you on the radio over the years, but you started life out as a biochemist. So, I mean, the COVID um, story must be interesting to you on a number of different levels from that perspective, that you 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 have a science background.
1: I have a science background. I absolutely loved science and I loved my four years um, doing microbiology and biochemistry and UCD. And the reason I switched was because I just could not, at that time, see a career in it. This was in the mid-70s. So I switched and I did. I qualified as a chartered accountant. And both the science and the accountancy have one thing in common, which is they're very, very precise. The devil is in the detail. So the mindset, I think, that I have uh, with a taste for detail suited both. Um, now, I have enjoyed hearing my science colleagues talk on the media and I think it's been fantastic that you know experts in their fields are increasingly being invited onto the media to counter the fake news that is out there unfortunately and um, so I love hearing my expert science uh, colleagues talking in terms of my own interpretation of what they're saying. I have to say the science is a far distance memory, Emmett. So, um, you know, I wouldn't consider myself to be expert in that field at this st- point. Yeah, but, but what you are is an advertiser for how
0: academia can take you on a very diverse journey. You know, you, you do hear people saying academia, the only disadvantage of it is that you can end up a little bit pigeonholed. But you've actually disproven that because you've drifted quite a long way away from that original calling.
1: An aspect of the academic world, Emmett, that most people don't really understand is that our ambition is to get published in the top international journals all over the world. And in order to get a paper published in a journal of high international standing, you have to do something original. You have to make what's called a contribution. So the academic world is very, very entrepreneurial. We are constantly having to come up with brand new ideas that other people haven't come up with to get our work published in good journals. Now, that's extremely challenging, but that challenge is extremely stimulating. So although I've been an academic for most of my career, I I feel the reverse of bored by it, utterly stimulated by it, utterly stimulated by the new projects that I'm uh, uh, carrying out with my uh, mainly much younger colleagues than me now. And it's such a joy. So it's again, it's a great privilege to be at this stage of my career and still absolutely loving it or maybe even loving it more than I ever did. Well, indeed, we had a great
0: conversation the last time uh, and we covered some of that. But the kind of things we were talking about in April, just myself and yourself, we were talking about life or death issues in society. Uh, You were talking about the life or death issues in society and then also at companies and how many of them could survive. We name check Debenhams, actually, as going into administration. Would you believe, like, uh, since then, they've now gone online, they're owned by boohoo.com, and they're out there again digitally, but not in the high street in the main. Um, and we were talking about um, companies that were paying dividends to their shareholders while they were putting employees on furlough. And I think you had some strong words about the, about that practice at the time. You were saying you were very disappointed that they were doing that sort of thing. And we moved into the whole area of shareholder value and how that has been the the prevailing orthodoxy over decades now of how companies should operate. So I suppose we were we weren't too bad in terms of we were marking the right issues. Things have slightly shifted. You don't hear quite as much about the dividend issue, but some of those wider issues are still in the news Um, all of that time later. So what sort of strikes you, you know, co- looking back at our conversation then and where we are now? Are there certain things that kind of jump out at you?
1: One of the projects that I have just got published is um, that with, again, two colleagues, we collected 428 trading statements and out of them we extracted 164 profit warnings in the period March, April 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning. And it was a unique opportunity to collect profit warnings, which are fairly rare corporate uh, documents, but to collect 164 all warning about the exact same thing, which was COVID. Uh, was very unique. But when you talk about life and death issues, we opened that paper by t- um, with a few quotes from some of the trading statements. And I have to say they're pretty um, moving because uh, the trading statements uh, were um, revealing that some members of staff of individual businesses had passed away and so we positioned the paper as you know it was a life and death context for human beings but it's also been a life and death context for business probably not as bad as we thought it would be a year ago or a year and a half ago um, so definitely life and death human life and death and corporate life and death And obviously, if companies are going ahead and paying dividends um, when their company is under stress, that puts the company at risk. And it's not just the company at risk, but also all the staff who work for the company and all the rest. When you talk about shareholder value, the pressure on that perspective is not going away you know the role of big corporations um in relation to climate change type issues they're under increasing pressure um and there is a Certainly in the academic literature, there's a a noticeable shift away from the shareholder value perspective, for example, to a civil society. You know, businesses should be doing good for civil society and not just for shareholders making, let's say, rich people richer. So um, the, the the shareholder value perspective, which you're, you're right, is the dominant perspective, but it is definitely under pressure, and it can't really continue if we are serious about climate change. And would you go as far as to
0: say it's it's it's, de- it's dead? Would you go that far, or, or is it going to struggle on for another few years?
1: Uh, no, I don't think it's dead because I think there'll always be the tension between uh, the purpose of the corporation. Um, in terms of the shareholders on the one hand and in terms of stakeholders and civil society on the other hand. Um, but the dominance of the shareholder value perspective, I think, is going to continue to come under pressure. And I think the kind of hard-nosed, let's say, American Donald Trump type attitude to business. I think that's going to shift, and I think it's going to shift more towards, you know, continental, European, the Baltic countries, who I think have a much more rounded uh, perspective on the good of society, the good of citizens, success in business, and to try and accommodate all of those multiple objectives um, at the same time, without one dominating over any of the others.
0: Yeah, certainly there's not too many defenders out there for it anymore. I mean, obviously, the... the, the shareholder value or the shareholder maximization model, you know, Milton Friedman was sort of associated with um, promulgating that in the 1970s. You don't read much literature on on saying this is the optimum system for companies and the wider society. Are there people still out there saying that or is it a really, really minority view in, in the kind of world you're in where you're reading these things all the time?
1: Unfortunately, in the, in the States, in the US and North America, the States and Canada, that shareholder value perspective continues to be extremely dominant. And if you're an academic not researching based on those assumptions, you're a bit of an outlier in, in the field, in my subject area anyway. Um, and it, so in my uh, area of research, uh, about 80% of the academics are wedded to the shareholder value notion, primarily coming from North America. And then 20% of us would be uh, take a kind of different stance along the lines that I'm speaking about civil society and all the rest. But I cannot see that the the Americans not shifting Uh, at the moment. They're still extraordinarily wedded to that assumption of shareholder value maximization. But I just can't see that being able to continue. I think that the reality of climate change is going to force them to shift. But anyway, from my point of view, because I'm not publishing in some of those North American journals because they have no appetite for my research. But interestingly, the the more eclectic journals that I publish in are becoming increasingly successful. And there are metrics now where you can look at uh, and assess the success of a journal. So it is clear that uh, there is definitely a shift underway But the Americans and the North Americans are behind the curve on that shift. But they will have to move in a different direction. Is it
0: possible, Neve, that one of the reasons we haven't gone all the way yet is because we don't necessarily all agree on what might replace it? There are lots of different models around there. we were very wedded in Ireland to the idea of worker directors. We've put them on a lot of um, estate companies, for instance. Uh, It doesn't necessarily always work that well. Other people want, um, you know stakeholders in the wider communities have a bigger say, as you said, climate change is looming in these areas. So is one of the reasons that we can all critique the shareholder value view, but we don't necessarily have a consensus on what the best replacement might be?
1: Um, That's true. But I kind of think the way it's going to play out, Emmett, it's going to be a little bit like smoking. You know, in the 70s, nearly everybody smoked. And now it is so frowned upon. And again i think that that society is going to shift business will have to go with the shift in society but i do think that our much younger colleagues i feel have a very different attitude to how we should live and i think that groups like extinction rebellion are the beginnings of Um, activism, you know, that will provoke a shift in attitudes, societal attitudes, in the same way that people who were violently against smoking in the 70s, you know, they were leading a shift in um, public attitudes. So that's how I think it will play out myself. But you're right, Emma, there's no one kind of solution or improved model. I think this will take decades and will play out by reference to what people want and what people think is um, appropriate but one of the things I kind of think is you know do we really need to buy a new outfit every second week do we need to buy 50 pairs of shoes we will have to moderate our attitude towards a consumerism for example
0: yes and um, I suppose for the big companies the big corporates and you've been on a a good few boards you you've been there and bought the t-shirt and know what it's like I notice what a lot of companies do first when they're being criticized is they try to co-opt the critics. You know They try to bring the, the, the dissenters into the circle. And you can see that actually going on of all places with football clubs. You know you can see the resistance to the Super League. Hasn't been as much resistance to Saudi Arabia buying the Newcastle club, but we'll leave that out of it. But they are trying to kind of bring in the fans groups, meet them and, and try and sort of uh, stave off the opposition that way. And you see companies doing this as well, where they they're prepared to bring certain shareholders into the inside of the tent i suppose that in a way is 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 a sort of the first tactic to try and um, blunt your your critics uh, and maybe you'll see a lot more people with a, a climate change perspective going on boards but does that bring forward the the kind of the greenwashing type issue where you know how much of it is for real how much of it is just sort of for the cameras and for looking virtuous.
1: Unfortunately, there is a huge amount of greenwashing out there. In fairness to companies, you know, listed companies, they are operating in the capital markets, and the capital markets are incredibly demanding of companies. And I wonder whether the capital markets give companies the space to find their way and to find their feet and all the rest. If you're a US company, and you have to make quarterly announcements of your results, and if you have a blip in any quarter, the market will absolutely destroy you. Your share price will take a terrible hit and all the rest. And so to be trying to maneuver in these very uncertain times with that kind of pressure at the same time, it's just extremely difficult for companies. But in terms of boards of directors, um, and again, it's, I, what comes to mind in this conversation is IT as well. We've got hugely shifting technologies We've got hugely shifting pressures from climate change and such like. And, you know, if you're on the board, I'd say it's very scary to ensure that the strategic objectives of the company shift in a way that protects the company and brings the company safely through, um, you know, very choppy waters at the moment. So finding the right strategy for your company which is not necessarily going to be doing the same next year as we did last year. I think that's really challenging for boards of directors whose primary job is to direct the company to prepare a fit-for-purpose strategy for um, the company.
0: And and you do wonder as well, Neva, and and see if you agree with me on this, but a lot of business models have been exposed by the COVID era and the two things that they rested on were global supply chain. So let's get a lot of our materials and our inputs from cheaper locations. Obviously, China looms uh, prominently there. And the second thing was they were they were, they were were getting a lot of cheaper, I wouldn't say cheap, but cheaper labor by having short-term contracts, you know, zero hours contracts, all that sort of stuff, the gig economy. And we covered that very prominently on this podcast. So you know, they had these two advantages, these two crutches that were there. And maybe some of the business models of certain companies and organizations weren't that great, really. They were resting on very Lakey kind of foundations and now we suddenly can see those and and boards are having to grapple with we can't get supply chain our inputs and our raw materials are going up 30 40 percent suddenly so it's kind of opened their eyes I would say in some ways that there was things that were kind of covered up uh, by the pre-covid era but are now being kind of laid bare.
1: You could argue Emmett that those things shouldn't have been covered up because now nowadays Uh, companies and boards are required to intensively engage in risk management. And I'm smiling when you list out all of those issues like supply chains, the pandemic, cheap labour and all the rest. I'm smiling because I'm wondering to myself, you know, to what extent were these identified on company risk registers? And I sometimes wonder myself about risk management and wonder, is it a bit of kind of formulaic, the performativity of governance? Or do organizations really sit down and really assess the risks i used to before the pandemic go to australia their winter or summer easy for me to get away from ucd and great to be in australia when they were full on in the winter but the australian university sector has been absolutely decimated because they have lost all of their chinese students uh, since the pandemic and the extent to which those uh, universities were exposed by their extreme reliance on that international student group. And I just wonder to what extent those uh, um, universities had uh, any risk management, risk mitigation um, in place to cope with the p- possible loss of uh, those international students.
0: Yeah, and I, I think for a lot of boards, the, the easy answer was always to get something cheaper or get it from somewhere else because we, we don't do a lot of manufacturing in this part of the world, as we all know. So we essentially subcontracted it out to other parts of the world and they made the stuff for us cheaper. And we then imported it back in and sold it at a premium to consumers locally. And when I say we, I mean, Ireland, Britain, France, Germany, whatever, the U.S., North America, generally Canada, et cetera. So I think we're are we being caught a little bit now there where we 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 kind of got away with it for many decades and the kind of the, the, the jig is up to a certain extent.
1: And and, I mean, there's some kind of moral questions also about using cheap labour in third world countries, but that's probably too big a topic uh, uh, to kind of um, pursue. But again, this emphasis on, you know, cheap, 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 it's contrary, uh, and maybe this phrase is just lip service. But, you know, the corporate governance codes talk about a long term sustainable model. That is definitely an imperative, but it probably will come with a cost. And one of the costs is not getting cheap labour. And I mean, another thing, Emmett, that that I just find bizarre is the way we're importing foodstuffs, like we're importing potatoes, um, you know, from Europe. Uh, You know, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to uh, incur the the transport costs, which can't be good for things like uh, climate matters? So we have to rethink, I think, um, a lot of. Our behaviour in everyday life and in terms of authority, companies
0: must be finding it difficult because you know we 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 live in a world which is quite distrustful. And I know the social media is 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 you know only one part of the communications landscape, but it's an important part nevertheless. And there's a lot of distrust. We have this anti-vax movement, which you know we've covered on this podcast. It's 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 causing a lot of difficulties for a lot of people, but it's out there and it, it's widespread. So who are the kind of holders of authority in the economy now and in society? So big companies probably find that they they can't get their way as much as they would like to. Their their message is questioned, and in many cases, rightfully so. Do you think that's a a difficulty for for the people leading companies that they have to fight harder to be believed, essentially?
1: Well, I'm not going to shed too many crocodile tears about, you know, some companies uh, and the level of distrust. I mean, there was one company, uh, the largest advertising company in the world, WPP. Um, It was fined $60 million by the SEC there recently. Um, because of the extent to which it allowed its subsidiaries in third world countries to engage in bribery and such like and in that company's annual report it has a page with in capital letters trust and transparency you know so here was the company claiming trust and transparency and all kind of you know buzzwords along those lines and we know for certain now because of the SEC investigation that it was doing exactly the opposite so you know and there's so much more and more of that going on I mean I kind of think when I started my own career in the 70s you know that there was a more of an old school attitude and uh, people who behaved in an old school type way you think of bank managers and such like you know and that you could trust them but nowadays it seems as if you know people who get to the top of organizations don't Seem to um think that that's important. They'll talk about it and give lip service to it, but I wonder to what extent do they live by the values that they espouse?
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, Neve, you've got a, a a very distinguished record to put it mildly in corporate governance. Have all these codes, uh, company law changes, and just a general kind of a, a closer focus uh, on modes of behavior and codes of behavior at companies have they actually had as much an impact as we would have liked or have they kind of fallen short or is it simply people are people and you can have codes going down the length of the road but unless people's core morality changes you're going to still have these slippages and I'm being (laughs) I'm being kind there falls downfalls in public behavior they're going to continue and there's no code that's ever going to kind of uh, address them that meaningfully
1: Well, Emmett, that's the aspect of corporate governance that I find most interesting. A good bit of my work would be around the kind of behavioural, social, psychological aspects of boards, rather than the rules and regulations. Now, I'm not against the rules and regulations, and there's absolutely no doubt that they have served to raise standards But at the end of the day, no rules and regulations will stop a chancellor being a chancellor. And unfortunately, um, I look at big business and I look at the kind of people that seem to succeed in getting to the top of big business. They'll talk about the integrity and all that kind of buzz, but they don't really live by those standards. And somehow they're managed to be very successful. Um, I think there's a greater awareness of that problem now and um, how that plays out in a very obvious way is that there's a lot more women who are CEOs because I think women are considered to be more trustworthy than our male counterparts. So particularly in financial services that have gone through a turret time, uh, you know, there is quite a large number of female CEOs now heading up banks uh, and I see that as a, an effort to try and improve the tone at the top in organizations
0: and do you think here in Ireland, just to be parochial for a moment, do you think the codes of behavior in Ireland have advanced at big companies over the last thirty years or, or like is there signs of progress or is it a lot for fuzzier?
1: I think their codes of behavior are much more demanding uh, they 're extremely demanding deeper and um, brought in a new code for state bodies. And they took an awful lot of the new code from the London Stock Exchange, UK Corporate Governance Code. So that was raising the bar significantly. The codes are definitely trying to improve standards. But at the end of the day, on their own, it's not enough. It has to be met also with uh, improved attitudes, particularly at the top of of organizations. And going back to WPP, The trust and transparency page in the annual report was fascinating because it was clear from the way it was written that um, they meant all the processes and procedures to apply to people lower down in the organization. There was a kind of them and us tone in the disclosures. And, you know, there was no question that the CEO would be expected to do all of this. So the problem is at the top of organizations. We would like to have people at the top of organizations that met the spirit of these codes and uh, not just their kind of strict legal form. Well,
0: Niamh, um, we've run out of time. I think we'll talk to you probably in another year's time. <laughs> um, you can see the things that have changed. They they change. It's, that's why I always take it. it's important to look at year on year because you can see the little milestones and something, a little wrinkle here and there where things have changed. Some things don't change at all. and are more monolithic and unchanging. But you can see from our conversation a year ago to now, um, the 50th episode, it's great to have you back. We'll talk to you again. Welcome back onto campus Congratulations on your research flow and your recent election to the Royal Irish Academy. Great achievements. It's great to, to rack those up during a difficult time. And, and thank you for today for the conversation.
1: Thank you, Emmett.